Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. If, you, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jason Weezy Poppy, and I'm the associate pastor here at Grace Bible Church Southwood. My wife, Jamie, and I moved here just about three and a half months ago. We have three little children. We have a six-year-old boy named Samuel and a four-year-old little girl named Annabeth and a 15-month little girl named Ella Grace. And we're so excited to be here. Jamie and I are both Aggies. We, we were here a number of years ago, and we attended Grace Bible Church as students, and so it was exciting for us to come back and, and to be here and to be amongst the family again. And a lot of you have been so welcoming, opening up your homes and your hearts to us, and have really embraced us. And for that, we're truly grateful. And if we haven't had a chance to meet you yet, we'd, we'd love to. Um, I would encourage you to get to know Jamie. She's the one that everybody wants to know anyway. So uh, if anything, for that reason, we should, we should uh, have time together. This morning, I want us to look at a passage in Luke chapter 15. Um, if you'd go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. If you don't have your Bible or weren't able to bring it with you this morning, you can reach underneath the chair in front of you and pull out that Bible. And I think it's on page 60 of the New Testament section. As we go to the Word and we look at God's Word, sometimes there's a risk. Sometimes there's a danger. Maybe better said, sometimes there's a caution that we need to take. Because sometimes for those of us who have grown up in church and we've come and we've sat and we've heard a thousand sermons, we can begin to think that the the words of the Bible, the stories that we hear, the good news of the gospel starts to become something for somebody else. We tend to think of it, well, it's for those people that are out there. It's, it's for those people who have gone far off and they're far away and, and, and you know, hopefully they'll come back and turn to God and come back in and they will come and understand God. And, you know, on, on one hand, well, that's not so bad. I mean, we want to be a church that has a message. We, we want to be a church where, where people come in and as they hear the word, as they, as they hear the gospel, as they encounter the people within this church, that they would sit back and say, yes. That's something that I want. That's, that's something that I need in my life. And that's good because for those of us who are Christians, well, we're Christians because we want to be. Uh, we're Christians because it's great to be Christian and we want others to be Christian. But here's the danger. The danger is that we can come and we can sit and we can listen to the story. We can listen to the message and we can say, oh, man, that, that, that's good. Oh, man, Blake, you know, you, you really hit it out of the park on that one. You know, I, I, I know someone who could use that. I, I, I know someone who could use that message. And uh, we begin to think that that message exists for other people. And we sit back and we miss the story because it's so familiar to us. Let me give you an example. Most people know what this is. It's a board game, very popular board game called Monopoly. I grew up playing Monopoly, still play Monopoly. I love it. It's one of my favorite games. It's been played by hundreds of thousands of people here in the United States. Uh, it's been produced for a long time. It's been produced in different languages and different formats all around the world. Millions of people have played this game. I mean, do you know how long this game is, has been produced and people have been playing it? Well, this year they celebrated their 75th year in production. 
For 75 years, people have gone out and bought this game and played it. But for 75 years, very few people have realized that this game was produced with a typo. It has a spelling error in the game. And it's been that way for 75 years. Do most of y'all know that? Most people don't. Well, here it is. (laughs) This nice little yellow property, Marvin Gardens. We go around and we buy Marvin Gardens and his two friends that are there on the board with him. And we we put houses and hotels on it and and hope of buying, of people landing on it and collecting more and more money. But Marvin Gardens isn't really spelled this way. It's not M-A-R-V-I-N. It's actually really spelled M-A-R-V-E-N. But for 75 years, it's been produced this way. But many of us miss it. Why do we miss it? Well, we miss it because we become so familiar with the game. We play it and we play it again and again and we become caught up in playing the game that we we never really pay attention to the details of what's there. And today I want us to look at a story. I want us to read us a story. It's a familiar story and because it's familiar, it's a risk. You maybe have heard this story a thousand times and and you read through it and you think through it and you think, boy, this is a great story. This is a great story of God's grace. This is a great story where, where somebody went out and they, they turned away from God and they ran away and then they became humble and they were broken and they turned and they went back towards God and he was there and, and opened his arms and welcomed him in and it's this great story of God's grace and his mercy and his love towards his people. And it is all that. But if we stop there, if we only go that far, we actually miss the whole point of the story. We we miss the point that Jesus is trying to make in telling the story. So let's go ahead and dig right in. The story is found in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. It's called the prodigal son. And if you go to church and church is your thing, well, this is probably one of the most popular stories that Jesus ever told. We're going to read some of it. I'm going to tell some of it. But together, we're going to work our way through it. So let's go ahead and look in verse 11. It says, And he said, A man had two sons. Very important. Two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the son turns to the father and he says, I want my share of your estate. And I want it right now. Now, this is something a little bit hard for us to comprehend because back in this day and back in this culture, back in this time, this is something that wouldn't happen. This is something that didn't happen because here's essentially what the son is saying to the father. He's looking at the father and he's saying, Father, you are dead to me. I no longer want a relationship with you. I no longer want any part of this family. In fact, I just want to bypass all that. I want to get to the end. I want to get to where you give me what I would get when you die. You are dead to me, and I want no relationship with you, and I want it now. And understand how difficult this was. I mean, at this time, they didn't just have bagfuls of cash laying around. They couldn't go to the local ATM and pull out the card and father swipe out a third of what he had and said, well, here you go, son. Head on out. Most of all his wealth, most of everything he owned would have been tied up in in property and uh, material possessions and land and livestock. I mean, he would have had to go go and sold a ton of what he had. Probably land that had been in the family for hundreds of years, he would have had to have gotten rid of. 
to turn and give the son one-third of his wealth. Because as the younger son, that's what he would have had coming to him. It's an unbelievable request. It's an incredible request. But even more unbelievable than the son's request is to the father is the father's response to the son. Look at the rest of verse 12. It says, so he divided his wealth between them. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I have a son, a six-year-old son named Samuel, and I love Samuel. But Samuel came to me and he said, Dad, you're dead to me. I no longer want any relationship with you. I don't want you in my life anymore. I want to go and live life on my own and, and experience my own life and do my own thing. And, and I just don't want you around anymore, Dad. Give me my inheritance now so I can get out of here and have nothing to do with you anymore. I mean, I, I would be crushed. My heart would be broken. And most of all, I can guarantee you, Samuel and I would have some words. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know what happens. The son, the son goes off, and he, he goes to a foreign land, and he, and he spends that time in, in wild living and, and spending his inheritance and, and doing those things that he wants to do, independent of his father, no longer under his father's thumb anymore, being able to fulfill his wild desires and all that he wants to do in his life. But okay, you know, we get the point, right? It's a parable. And the younger son represents those who go out and they, they flagrantly disobey God and, and fulfill their desires and live life the way that they want to. So we understand that, right? So look at what happens next. Look at verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So things are going really well for the younger son. Right? You know, he's living it up. He's having a great time. But then he runs out of money. And he, he begins to lose everything. He loses his friends. He becomes alone. He becomes impoverished. And, and he gets to the point that once he's now lost everything, a famine hits the land. And he finds himself as a young Jewish man having to do one of the things that he probably thought he never, ever would have to do. He has to hire himself out to work with pigs. And if you know anything about the Jewish religion, pigs is about as disgusting and as vile as it gets. I mean, you have nothing to do with them. I mean, you wouldn't work with them. You wouldn't touch them. You wouldn't eat them. You would have absolutely nothing to do with them. It's vile. It's disgusting. That's how rock bottom the younger son gets. And probably you and I know people who are in the same boat. We know people who have gone out, they've said no to God, and they want to live life the way that they want to live life. They want to, to do things on their own term. And then they find themselves 
having hit rock bottom. And that's where the younger son finds himself this morning. Let's read on. Let's see how he responds in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. So what does he do first? Well, he hatches a plan. See, he's gotten to the point where he hits rock bottom and he discovers that he has nothing. The only hope that he has is his father. He has to turn around and he has to go back and he has to beg to his father. His father holds the only bit of salvation that he knows. Nobody was giving him anything. Nothing. It was only the father. So he turns and he goes back and he lives out his plan But the Bible tells us this wonderful story that as the son is coming back, the father sees him a long way off and he begins to run towards him and he comes up and he hugs and he embraces him. And we don't see it here, but the translation of this really means that he fell upon his neck. He didn't just come up and give him a big bear hug and say, son, I'm so glad you're back. It's great to have you here with us. He had such compassion and such joy and such fervor that his son was coming back that he literally fell upon him. And not only does he do that, but he restores him to the family. He puts on him the best robe. He puts sandals on his feet. He puts a ring on his finger, signifying that he's back in the family. He is a son again. He is an heir again. He has total and complete access to the Father again. The Father welcomes him in. He welcomes him in, and he forgives him. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And should this morning, should you find yourself somewhere along the life or along the path of the younger son, maybe you've pushed God away. Maybe you said, you know, I'm tired of that Christian thing. I'm tired of the religious thing. I'm not going to read some book that's thousands of years old and have it mean anything to me. I mean, how's that going to apply to my life? I don't want to live life like that. I want to live life on my own. I want to be able to do what I want to do and live life the way that I want to. And maybe you've been along that path and you've discovered that maybe you're really not that happy. Maybe you look into your life and there is no joy. You're not really becoming the person you thought you were going to be. And you've hit rock bottom. 
If this is you, this is what I want you to hear this morning. I want you to know that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how disgusting you think the things you are that you've done, no matter how badly you've hurt your family, your friends, your community, no matter how far off you've gone, you are not out of the reach of God's love. You are not out of the reach of his arms. You are never out of the reach of his grace. All he wants to hear you say is, is God, please forgive me. I I, I bring nothing to the table. I, I have nothing to offer you. I realize that I have run and I have turned from you, but God, please forgive me and welcome me back in and forgive me. And there's nothing in heaven. There's nothing on earth. There is nothing in hell that can ever separate you from God's love. It's an amazing story. It's a wonderful story. No, no wonder it's so famous. But here's the danger. The danger is that many of us can sit here and say, yeah, yeah, Jason, I have been to church for a long time. I've heard that story. It's probably the thousandth time I've heard that story. And it's a good one. Yeah, I'll give you that. And it's great. And you know what? I do know somebody that could hear that. I do know someone I could remind of that and have that mean something in their lives. But here's the thing. The story is not over. Jesus, Jesus hasn't even begun to make his point yet because now he's going to move to where he's not focusing on the younger son anymore. But he's going to move his focus to the older son. And the hard thing about that is the older son, well, he begins to look a lot like you and me. He begins to look a lot like people who have gone to church for a long time and have been doing the Christian thing for a long time. You, you see, the whole reason why Jesus is even telling this story, this, this story is in a series of three parables in Luke 15. It's the, the third of the three but starting back in the first part of Luke chapter 15, he talks about people who are coming and listening. He's, he's got these people who are coming along. They're sitting in his, his virtual pews and sitting up on the hillside, and, and they're listening to him. And the first group of people he's talking about are the notorious sinners. Look at verse 1 in chapter 15. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen. Tax collectors. So he's got sinners coming from all around that are coming and they're coming to listen to him. But he specifically points out the tax collectors. And to you and I, we may read that and hear that and we say, well, well, what's the big deal with the tax collectors? I mean, you know, truthfully, in my mind, tax collectors are always kind of those cute little sinners. I mean, it's like I have a four-year-old daughter. She comes home and she's like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Okay, she's four. She's got big blue eyes and blonde hair and she sings that. And I just had this vision of this cute little man, this wee little Zacchaeus who, who climbs up in the tree. And I know that song's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day now. And, and, and he's, you're welcome. And, and he goes up in the tree and, and Jesus comes behind. He's like, Zacchaeus, you come down. And they go to his house in this wonderful time. And, you know, and so the tax collectors come in, they're forgiven, but you know, they're kind of the cute little sinners. There's not that big a deal. Well, not to the Jews. <laughs> Actually, to the Jews, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. It's as foul as you can get. And Jesus wants to make sure that the Pharisees and the scribes understand who's there and who's coming 
Because let me tell you a little bit about tax collectors. Well, they were Jewish and they lived in you know, Jerusalem and around. And at that time, Jerusalem was under Rome's rule, right? So you've got Rome and they're ruling everything from, from Spain to India and from England down to Morocco, this huge, vast area. And they ruled it with an iron fist where they came in and they were killing people and crucifying people. They, they were ruling with violent intimidation. I mean, there's stories of the Romans where they would come into an area and as they would come into a city, they would begin to take its inhabitants and they would begin to crucify them on the way up the streets. One by one, hundreds, thousands at a time, so the city would just surrender without fighting, without, without cause. And that's just what they would do. Well, you have these tax collectors. And they go up to Rome and they go, Hey, Rome, we've got a little bit of a business proposition for you today. We, we want a franchise. And specifically, we, we want a tax collector franchise. And, and, and hear me out. Here's the business plan. Here's the proposition. We are going to go out. And we're going to collect taxes from all of our people. And an inordinate amount of taxes, many times amounts that they can't even pay. And we'll take a little off the top for ourselves and we'll give you the rest. And just think, just think what you could do with that money. You, you can go out and you can, you can hire more soldiers to, to kill people and, and, and to keep our, our own people enslaved. I mean, that's shocking. I mean, who would do that? I don't even have a modern day example to, to, to compare that to, to who these kind of people were. But it's these kind of people, the, the notorious sinners, the biggest of the sinners, that they were coming and they were listening to Jesus and they were responding and they were asking for forgiveness and Jesus was welcoming them in and having dinner with them. But there's a second group of people And the second group of people are sitting there, probably off in the distance a little bit, arms folded, shaking their heads, looking down their noses at the drunkards, the prostitutes, these tax collectors that were coming in. And what they were thinking, Jesus gives us a little bit of glimpse into in verse 2. Says both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Jesus, how dare you? How dare you? Do you not know that these are sinners? These are the worst of the worst sinners, even. If you are really the Son of God and you can give forgiveness for sins, You don't forgive these people. What what, what do you think that you are doing? But here's this. Implicit in the idea of what they're saying is, Jesus, really, we're the ones who deserve forgiveness. We are the ones who have been obedient. We're we're the ones who have listened to your law. And and not only have we obeyed the law to the letter, we've memorized the law. And and, and we teach the law and and, and we preach the law. We're the ones who deserve forgiveness. We've obeyed and done everything you've said. But it's for this kind of thinking. It's for this reason that Jesus is actually giving this parable. So now look what happens. 
So the man throws a party, throws a gigantic party. And then there's fun and there's dancing and there's celebration and, and all this is going on. It's probably the, bi- the biggest celebration this town has ever had. And the brother comes in and he hears what's going on. And let's see what he does and how he responds. Look at verse 25. It says, Now his older brother was in the field. And when he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. So, hey, you know, what's going on? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And listen how the brother responds. But he became angry. It was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. He wouldn't go in. <laughs> he wouldn't go into the party. I mean, I mean, what a change of events. The, the, the very son that, that disobeyed, that ran off, that went far away, that lived life in rebellion and came home, well, he's now inside. He's in the party. He, he's at the celebration. And he's having a good time. He's dancing. But the very son that stayed close by and was obedient, did everything the father said. Well, he, he's on the outside and, and the father comes out and he pleads with him and he begs with him. He says, please come in. But the son responds and he says this, look at verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Shocking. (laughs) The scribes and the Pharisees, they were smart people. I mean, they, they knew what, what Jesus was saying. And, you know, they're like, no, 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 th- this can't be. I mean, how, how can the son, the rebel, the one that went far off, well, why is he in the party? Well, why, why does he get to be in the party and have the fattened calf for him? You, you have the older son, and, and he stayed close to the father, and, and, and he, he was obedient. He, he did everything he was commanded to do. And he, does, he didn't even get a young goat. He doesn't get a party. He doesn't get anything. And one of the hard things about the story is when it ends, well, it doesn't really completely end because we never discover what the younger son does. When the story ends, the older son is still on the outside. (laughs) We don't know if he goes into the party or not. Timothy Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, it's a book I highly recommend. It's a wonderful retelling of this story, this parable makes a comment on this, and I want to read a little bit of of it to you. It says, Jesus does not simply leave it at that. It gets even more shocking. Why doesn't the elder brother go in? He himself actually gives the reason. Because I never disobeyed you. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. 
It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and the Father. It's the pride he has in his own moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. Well, what did the older son want? If we think about it, we realize that he wanted the same thing as his brother. He was just as resentful of the father as the younger son. He, too, wanted the father's goods rather than the father himself. However, while the younger brother went far away, the elder brother stayed close and never disobeyed. That was his way to get control. His unspoken demand is this, I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things in my life the way I want them to be done. You have to act, Father, and do things in my life the way that I think that you should. At the end, the hearts of the two brothers were actually the same. Do you realize what Jesus is teaching? See, neither son really loved the father for himself. They were really using the father for their own selfish ends. Neither one of them was loving or serving or or obeying the father for his own sake. (laughs) So the message is that, you know, you can rebel and be alienated from God by running far off and breaking all the rules, as did the younger son, or by keeping all of them diligently, like the older son. It's a shocking message. That actual careful, prideful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. As I said a little bit earlier, you know, I, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church most of my life. Not, not always in a Bible church, but in the church. And I can remember the story of a pastor in the community, a pastor that he had spent time as a businessman and was actually pretty successful, but felt the call in his life to, to go and to, to be a pastor. So he left the business world behind and, and he came in to be a pastor, in which he served for many, many years, very faithfully. Well, as he got towards the end of his life and he reached, was in his 70s, he had a terminal disease, disease that would begin to cripple his body slowly and eventually take his life. And at the end, what he said was, God, I have served you faithfully. I I have done everything that you have asked me to do. I have been obedient, and and I left so much behind. I could have been very successful in business, but I gave that up to be a pastor, to follow where I thought you wanted me to go. God, you owe me. I don't deserve this. You owe me. See, here, here's a sneaky thing, okay? See, most of us sit here and we realize, okay, there's, there's a way that we can walk away from Jesus. There's a way that we can avoid Jesus. And that's to be like the younger son. We just go off and we live life and we say, we're going to do it on our own. We live life the way that we want. I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want. And we get to a point where, you know, we're saying, basically, I have no need for Jesus. I have no need for Christ. Basically, I'm my own master and my own savior. But there's an even sneakier way to avoid Jesus. And that's by doing everything he says, by being so good that we don't need him anymore. 
by having pride in our own moral record to say, God, I have obeyed you. Now give me what I want. I've done everything you've asked. Now bless me. Now come through in the way that I think that you should come through in my life. And you do the same thing. You basically become your own savior. You become your own master. And Jesus is not a part of life and you don't need God anymore. And we get to a point where our hearts aren't broken anymore. We have no need for his grace. Our hearts don't break for sinners. And when we act like that, we become like the older brother. Now, I want us to think for a moment and ask ourselves this question. How do I know if I have become the older brother? How do I know if I've become older brother-ish? How do I know if Jesus is, is telling this story to me? Well, there's a few signs in the text. We can find them starting in verse 28. It says, but he became angry and was not willing to come in. The brother was angry. How do you respond when God doesn't do something in your life the way that you want? How do you respond when God doesn't come through the way that you think that he should? I mean, all of us can think of things in our life or the way that we prayed for God specifically for this or specifically to do this or, or, we, or we wanted this and we poured our hearts out to God, but it, it just didn't happen that way. You know, do we become angry? If you are, you might be like the older brother. And you might be obeying God and serving him, not because you're thankful for what he's done and what he's been in your life, but because you have expectations of God. If I do this, then God, you do this. But there's another. Look in verse 29. So the first one is anger, resentment to God when he doesn't respond. Verse 29, he says, But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Slavish obedience. The older son begins to serve and serve God, not because he has joy or gratitude, but because It's just what God commanded me to do, so that's what I'm going to do. You know, I would pray that we would never become a church that that reaches out to people or that invites people in or or does things or, or, or gives or serves simply because we believe that that's what God commanded us to do. I don't want to do things just because I think that's what I'm supposed to do, but out of my joy, out of my gratitude, out of my love for God, the joy that the Spirit has placed in my heart, I want to serve him earnestly. But if we don't, if we're just serving or doing things because, well, that's what we're supposed to do, you might be like the older brother. There's another. He says this in verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Moral superiority. The older brother looks at the younger brother and he feels that he's morally superior to the brother. 
He believes that he's cut from a different cloth than his brother. In fact, he doesn't refer to him as his brother in this passage, right? What does he say? He says, this son of yours. And he did this, and he did this, and he did this. Don't you see, Father? I'm much better than him. (laughs) I deserved the fattened calf, but you never even gave me a young goat. I deserve so much more. Men and women, you know, when we get to the point where we come in and we cross our arms and, you know, we know people or we've heard of people or we see people that have done something morally wrong and we begin to think of ourselves as morally superior to them, that we're somehow morally better to them, or do we see ourselves as forgiven sinners, deeply in need of God's grace every day. If we don't, if we see ourselves as morally superior, we have become like the older brother. There's one more. Finally, it seems that there's no sense in which the younger brother feels the love of his father anymore. Look at verse 29, the second part of it says, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Skip down to verse 31. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So the father looks at the son and he says, son, You've been with me this whole time. I love you because you are my son. Not because, you know, you've done the Christian dance. I, I, I love you because of, of who you are. Not because of your perfect obedience. And yet, the son still thinks that his relationship to his father is based on his performance. And he never feels like he measures up. And because he never feels like he measures up or can measure up, he never experiences the love of his father. Men and women, if you and I think that based on what we do or how obedient we are depends on how much God loves us or doesn't love us, you will never, ever fully experience the love of your heavenly father. He loves you because of who you are. Because you are an heir, because you are a son, because you you are his daughter, because you are a child of God, he loves you and he loves you deeply. And he wants you to experience and know that love. But if we keep trying to do things, things that we think that we're earning his love, we will never fully experience it. We never know it. You see, this story this morning, it's a story for you and me. Everybody in life starts off like the younger son, far off, separated from God. And, and hopefully somewhere for most of you, and well, hopefully for all of you, you came to a point where you, where you understood this and you came to God and you, you went to the cross in tears and begging for forgiveness and, and saying, God, I understand that, that my sin separates me from you and, and I need you and I, I, I need your love and I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. And we were excited and we were on fire and we, were, we just took in the love of God. 
But now, now you've been a Christian for a while. And the temptation, the danger, the risk, the caution in that is that you can become like the older brother. And let me put it to you this way. One of my favorite things in seminary was church history. I know, I'm an odd duck. It's okay. I'm secure with it. Plus, I have a wonderful wife, so she makes up for it, actually. But, but I love church history. And as I look at 2,000 years of church history, well, you know, what do you see? Well, you see churches that start. And they're, they're on fire for God. And they're zeal for God. And, 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 and they love God. And they're reaching out in the community. And they're bringing people in. And they're loving each other. And people from the outside look in. And they're like, whoa, look what's going on at that place. I, I want to be a part of that. But as time goes on, the church begins to grow stale. Well, why does that happen? Well, they begin to come like the older brother. And they can get to a point where they come in and they sit in the chairs or the pews and they they cross their arms and they smile because they're going to get some songs and they're going to get hopefully a nice message, something that helps them feel good and, you know, walk out and go into the week. And they begin to care less and less about the people on the outside. And they actually think that's a good thing. Those sinners, those notorious sinners, well, well they're out there. That's, it's great because we're in here together. And they lose a heart for the lost. They don't weep in prayer anymore towards God. They lose zeal in the Christian life. Men and women, I want to challenge us this morning to look at our hearts Have we become the older brother? Because here's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be broken. The church is supposed to be humble. The church is supposed to realize its desperate need of God's grace and and need of God every moment of every day. I I want us to be a church that's like the younger brother, that we're going back out on the road, going back to the father And the father sees us and he runs and he embraces us and he hugs us. And we experience God's love. And because of that love, we have a desire for the lost. We have a desire for the people out there. We love one another. We have a zeal for our Christian life. That's what I want us to be. Now bow with me in prayer. (laughs) Oh, Father. Forgive me. (laughs) Forgive me because I know that I have a lot of older brotherness in me. I remember the zeal of becoming a Christian and enjoying you and experiencing your love. Father, forgive me for ever doubting your great love for me. Father, forgive me for when I sin and I fall down instead of getting up and running towards you. Forgive me because I sometimes actually run away from you. Father, forgive me for not loving the world the way that I should. Father, forgive us as a church. Forgive us if we have become older brothers and have lost the grace, the joy, the love, and we've started to just perform the the Christian dance. Forgive us. Lord, help us to re-understand that love, to re-experience it, to make it real in our lives, 
that we become so thankful and in deep gratitude for your grace and mercy towards us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.